Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Maria Cantify. Um, I look after the film program at BAFTA. Welcome on International Women's Day um, to yeah, um, for this fabulous panel with our female filmmakers or filmmakers um, from getting your first script um, to screen. Um, so we have Rachel Delahaye, Sally El Hosseini, and Olivia Hetreid here. Um, Olivia is also president of the Writers Guild of Great Britain, um, as well as a BAFTA-nominated screenwriter for Girl with a Pearl Earring. Um, Sally El Hosseini was one of our BAFTA Elevate directors last year, and her feature film, My Brother Devil, was 2004? 13. 13. Um, Rachel is one of our BAFTA Elevator writers this year, currently working on Noughts and Crosses, um, worked on Kiri, and wrote a couple of pages for the Grazia competition, which we will talk about as well. Um, so, well, I suppose we're all here to find out how you get your first script to screen. Can all of you perhaps talk about, initially, the first ever script that you worked on and kind of the genesis of that, the idea, was it an adaptation? Where did it come from? Were you commissioned or was it just out of pure joy? <laughs> Is it uh, joy? Sure. I feel like I'm the least experienced person, so I feel fraudulent starting. Um, but I guess I came from theatre, so I was writing plays, um, and I found it really easy to kind of hit the ground running and leave a scene with a bit of, um, like, a, a, a desire to see where those characters were going. And someone said, which in theatre, I guess, a norm is considered long, meaty scenes where you spend a bit of time with those characters, and I was kind of writing one-page scenes. And someone was like, I feel like you might be suited to screen writing. So I just arrogantly was like, okay, I'll give that a go. And I think my first screenplay was like 120 pages <laughs> of a beast of a thing, um, which I guess an, an ideal would be 90. So very baggy, very loose. But I, I came to it with the same thing that I came to theatre writing with, which is I want to write a story um, for me personally, which is a, a detail that might stay with me, might not, but for I want for female protagonists, want for women of colour, female protagonists, I've always written. Um, yeah, and just hearing stories that I want to hear. That's where I started. Olivia? Um, well, I'm sufficiently old that when I was a small child, <laughs> <laughs> I saw two films in quite quick succession, and they were The Sound of Music and 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I just thought, wow, what, what is this magical thing? And though I didn't, I had no idea, I had no access to film at all, I sort of stumbled my way into finally into being a film editor, um, being an assistant film editor and then a film editor. And through that, I was working on a show and we had somehow lost the plot, quite literally lost the plot of this show. And we ended up in a desperate resource. I, you know what an over-the-shoulder shot is when you're, you have the shoulder of one person here and the face of the other person there. And the shoulder had to explain the plot to the person there. <laughs> and then we'd reverse and that shoulder would explain it back. And I had to do the explaining. So I got, because I was the editor and there was nobody left on the show by that point. <laughs> and at the end of this process, and astonishingly, the producer said, have you got anything else? And I said, like, yeah, I can really write better than that. Um, <laughs> and um, so... 
Uh, I wrote a half-hour kids' drama, which was on a Channel 4 educational series, I think, called Making English or Being English or something English. Middle English, that was it. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, and I knew nothing enough that I didn't think it was astonishing that three months after I'd written my first proper script, it was on TV. I wish I had known that that was such a great break because I just didn't enjoy it at the time. But anyway, yeah, so it was kind of a good circumstance and then a lot of persistence. Do you think your background in editing has kind of paved the way for learning storytelling? Oh, from a yeah. Different yeah, I mean, I can't route. recommend editing highly enough if you have that bent at all because it is basically the last, the last version of telling the story. Um, and you get to make all those decisions and you get to examine them. And what you do as an editor is you read the script over and over again. Um, and then you look at the rushes and you try and work out the best way of that material telling that story. And it may not be the way it was written anymore because of what's been shot. So it's a fantastically good school for learning storytelling. Um, the only thing I think was that when I started writing, I left out all the scenes in between because I knew when I got to the edit, I would leave them out. Mm. But then it turned out that for people to read the script was a different thing yeah. than for people to see the film. And so I had to learn to put those scenes back in and trust that they would fall out later. Sally. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I'd always written poetry, short stories when I was growing up that I would never show anybody. Um, in writing, keeping a diary. And you kind of know if you can write, even if you haven't shown it to anyone, um, because it's something you've maybe secretly been doing. And it, um, you just feel you have an affinity with words or not, or maybe English in school is your favorite class, or just, you know, there's something that connects you to the written word or reading. And so I, I kind of knew that about myself and then forgot it and was studying something completely different in university and really unhappy. And then I kind of had this eureka moment where I was like, oh gosh, I don't know what I want to do with my life, but my favorite things are words and writing, um, taking photographs and it's working with people, you know. So what's a job that combines all those three things? Did you type it into a machine? <laughs> no, it literally was a light bulb switching on and I thought, oh my gosh, filmmaking is those three things. And then, of course, um, this was in the time when there were grants um, and I'd already had my grant for the course I was on and there was no filmmaking course in my uni to move to. Um, I just had to kind of finished my degree, which was in something completely different. Um, and then when I graduated, start to try to find my way to work my way into the film industry, not knowing anyone as well. So with zero contacts. Um, and the first, um, at that time, I decided to start making some short films. So I wrote shorts that I made with just friends. Um, so I guess those were the first scripts, although I really wouldn't show anybody any of those short films. <laughs> and are shorts really the training ground, do you feel, or is it a completely different skill base to be able to write a short than it is a feature-length film, or say episodic TV? It's a, it's a great place to start if you want to be a director. Yeah. Not necessarily for a writer, I don't think. It's a bit of a graveyard for much, writers. I think it takes as much energy as well. Mm. Yeah. I think in both theatre and film, mm. when someone asks you to write a story in 15 minutes or 50 minutes, it's a lot of energy to kind of get those gear changes in. A 15-minute short film is just a very, very well-edited feature, yeah. yeah, actually. And the amount of energy I think it takes is the same. Mm. And then your short film to kind of write, and was that was always with a view to 
wanting to direct as well as write? Yeah, I mean, I was writing them to direct um, those short films, but I then, because um, I couldn't afford to go to film school and you know, you're in the mentality of permission, asking permission, um, I ended up just working in the industry for 10 years at various jobs. Mm. Um, just to learn how the industry worked. So I worked in documentary filmmaking uh, for a couple of years. I was a production coordinator on feature films, which is kind of organizational um, in the production office. And then I worked at the BBC as a script editor for a few years. And it was kind of after 10 years of working um, around all the creative jobs, doing the kind of organizational jobs, that I had the courage to just quit and back myself and be like, no, I'm actually going to write and direct some films. And I, made, I wrote a one-minute short, which I directed, um, and it did really well. And then I wrote three more ambitious shorts that were mini features, really. But because I thought the shorts were a stepping stone to the feature, mm. um, I thought I'd better do that first. And they turned out not to be, because um, it, there is so, the, the, getting money to make shorts is so hard because um, there isn't a lot. So unless you are kind of rich it's <laughs> and can put your own money into the shorts, you know, getting people to part with money for them, they aren't going to get a return on them. So just in terms of business sense, it's really hard. So it's a good training ground to practice things with mates. But I actually think just start writing the feature, which is what I then did. Because mm. mm. that's the real yeah. thing. That first feature, My Brother the Devil, it was ambitious and also quite different to what we were seeing at the time in terms of obviously writing it is one thing but then getting it made in terms of it's asking a lot of first time director a female director a first time feature film writer with a cast that's completely for the most part unknown mm -hmm. and diverse and set in London and kind of in the inner city what were the challenges A getting that first getting that script seen yeah no a lot of challenges I mean um, everybody rejected it. <laughs> I mean, it took five years to make. Um, and it, um, it really was me starting from a position of, okay, I'd worked in different jobs in the industry, but everybody says with your first feature is execution dependent. Of course it is, because you haven't made a film before. Um, so, you know, it's their jobs to say no. And I guess the biggest lesson I learned on that five-year journey was even though people... Um, in positions of power um, may say things, it doesn't mean they're right. Um, it's just all an opinion. If they knew how to make a great film, they would make every film great. And it, <laughs> they just, yeah. Can I ask yeah. A would you then, if you did your time again, would you write, were you writing for budget or were you cutting and reducing or were no. you writing ambitiously and then producers were like, you need to cut? Well, um, no, I didn't even have producers, okay. so I couldn't even get producers to, to back me. Nothing in the back of your mind um, was like, this is an expensive shot, this will no, be No, it wasn't ambitious because it was expensive. It was ambitious, I think, be different people who I went to for money thought it was ambitious because of different things. Right. So um, some people said, I will give you money tomorrow if you remove this storyline right. that they mm. felt was making the film less commercial. Right. Um, which I felt was the heart of the film. Right. And other people said, you've got dual protagonists, and those films don't do well at box office. You need one protagonist, one hero. Um, you can't have two main characters. And I was like, yeah, but my story is a story that explores the sibling relationship, so it's about both brothers. Yeah. And it, they wanted it to be either about one or the other. 
And so I said no to those people. So really that five-year journey was me just building the muscle of you know, honing my own vision for the film, really, and working out you know, what were the lines that I would, didn't want to cross. So I could have made the film years before, but it wouldn't have been my film. Mm. So, you know, stay true to your vision. And, it's, you know, in the end, it was financed completely independently. And I think, you know, in this country, very lucky, we have organisations like the British Film Institute or Film 4 or BBC Films. They offer kind of funding for films. Yeah. But a lot of filmmakers feel like you go to one of those three or four players and that's how you get your film made. And if they reject you, it means you can't be a filmmaker or you can't make a great film. But that's actually not true, you know. Um, I had to develop a producer chip. I hate like producing, but you have to do that. So um, I guess it's slightly a different experience because I'm writing and directing. Mm. And as a, if you've just written it, I guess you're then, um, it's, you, you, you maybe have less of the practical yeah. consideration. Mm. But, but when you say it took you five years, mm. because as a writer, I, often takes five years at least for mm. things, but I'm doing something else and then something else and then something else, and then they finally say, maybe we're <laughs> gonna get it made. But you were doing all the hustling yourself in that five years? Yeah. And were you also working three jobs to stay alive and all of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had worked for 10 years in various jobs in the industry, so I had been used to a salary. And then when I left the BBC, um, you know, I really had to go back to living like a student. And it, um, I just went around my local neighborhood and found people like local charities that wanted promos made. And I just got a camera and it just did little jobs, making things like editing on my computer in my bedroom. Um, just kind of small jobs that would allow me then to have the time to not only write the script, but also to do all the hustling. Mm -hmm. And so at that point I needed a producer. So it was doing things like just going to Cannes, mm. not knowing anybody there, but just going and it's seeing how do you get accreditation? Can I try to meet a producer? Can I try to meet people? And it was interesting because when I had written the script and just went to Cannes, for example, you meet other people who are like you with a script trying to get it off the ground yeah. and you form like a little tribe and it's, you're all staying like outside Cannes because Cannes is expensive <laughs> and you're all renting cars and like going in every day, doing it on the cheap, getting into parties, trying to meet people with your script in your, in your back pocket. Um, but the thing is, the first year you go, you meet a group. And then the second year, maybe half of them have come back. And then the third year, there were only three of us. So it is about he who lasts the longest. Do you, Olivia, yep. do you think yep. that having kind of an, quite a set career as an editor beforehand and having those contacts and made it any easier? Or was it starting again no. from the beginning? Uh, no, it was hugely easier. Hugely easier yeah. because basically the first first three jobs I did were for the producer that I'd been working for as an editor. So it was absolutely that I knew people already, I was already in the business. I understood more or less how it worked, you know, and where, where people were and what to do. But I, then I think it also made me more cautious, whereas Sally was kind of going, I'm out here and I'm going to get in. Oh, you'd spent 10 years mm -hmm. in the business, you know. But, um, I was like, well, I understand the rules of the game and this is what I can do and these are the steps I need to take and so on. It was interesting what you said at the beginning about as an editor, you always kind of knew quite soon what bits to discard, but as a writer, you have to always keep those in. Yeah. Was that A, difficult, and B, how do you kind of even know 
how to even navigate kind of that new way of thinking and then the impression people, they are. There's a lot of people who are willing to tell you what's wrong with your script. There's never a shortage yeah. of them. <laughs> um, are there beats that you have to hit? Are there all? Do, do you? Are there rules that you all follow initially, and then they all get thrown out the window? But no, I don't think so. I think. I mean, I think there's. You know, there are some great books about about writing scripts, and they are really useful. But I never read them when I'm writing. I really think they're they're counterproductive. It's like trying to write poetry with a grammar book in your hand. Mm -hmm. I think you have, to, you have to write whatever it is you want to say and then work out what's wrong with it once you've written it and then go, OK, now I have this thing and it's really lumpy at this end and it takes much too long to get going and, and there are five protagonists and you know, there's all sorts of things wrong with it. But once, do that once you've got it and then shape it and then find out what it is and then go, oh, yeah, and these guys say there are these rules, and, well, maybe these rules are useful to me. Now I know what my story is. But to try and guess what the story is mm. by writing according to some rules, I don't know. I just I don't know how anyone does that. I wanted to talk a little bit also about kind of the two ways of kind of writing the authored work that you all do, but also the work that you're hired to do and kind of and that landscape and, you know, having kind of inserting authority and kind of within a writer's room, for instance, or within episodic television. Um, you've worked kind of across both areas. What would you say, would, is there a, are you as excited about, you know, being a writer for hire as you are about creating your own authored work? Um, yeah, yeah, the projects I've picked have been um, drama, I guess, mainly. I haven't done continuing drama. Mm. I would think I would struggle with continuing drama because I feel you're, you're walking into a world there where actors know those parts better than you do, you know, serious producers know those parts better than you do, and you really are a writer for hire. In the jobs that I've done, we've been coming with new stories, and, you know, we did an adaptation of a book for Amazon this year coming out, the feed. There's a book, there's a template, we all read it, but then all of us sat in a room and worked out, hashed out what we wanted that story to be, and there's four writers doing that. And we are going from the beginning, middle, and end, and we're coming up with that. And as much as there's a lead writer at the helm, mm. we're contributing. I'm saying who I think this, you know, the wife character is going to be. I'm deciding, you know, what like their backstory is, you know. And you realise I'd done an online thing, um, the Laura Kitchens thing, mm. with three of my friends for the BBC a few years earlier that we just pitched the lols really <laughs> we were like wouldn't it be really funny if we did a 24-hour like murder mystery and they were like make it i was like oh fuck <laughs> <laughs> so long but we did it and it was working it was the first time i'd ever gone from writing plays to writing a 24-hour kind of murder mystery online with three of my friends who are all screenwriters as well and we all got on so well and we all thought this would be really easy and then suddenly you're battling mm -hmm. and you're fighting over you know what character's journey should be how they speak the dialogue the the rhythm of the piece and then you realize the fights that you're having the hardest are the things you care about the most and once i'd got through that we just realized we're all working for the same goal, which is to make the thing better. So when you're screaming at two in the morning, being like, you don't get it. Like, she wouldn't say that. <laughs> like, just hoping that someone dies of exhaustion first. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're, you're, you are pushing the piece forward. And by the time I got to the end of that journey, what I learned was, I was like, 
just foreheads are just quicker than one. They're just quicker. Having those fights mm -hmm. at two in the morning feels exhausting and draining at the time. On your own, that would have taken me a week to get there. So I, I suddenly learned the benefits of it. And then you're sitting in a writer's room hashing that out. Um, one of the screenwriters I worked with, he had a habit of saying no to everything. So I'd be like, what if she lived in Lewisham? He'd be like, no one who's from outside of London would move to London and live in Lewisham. Like, who the fuck would do that? <laughs> like, blah, blah, blah. He's like, it's not even on a tube. If you don't know anything about London, why would you be in Lewisham? Like, sure, she's skint. She doesn't really have any money. Lewisham's kind of chic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe she could live in Lewisham. And you're like, this is exhausting. <laughs> but at the same time, everything of our story was being interrogated. Yeah. And we felt like we had something solid at the end of it. So um, I spoke to a writing duo um, that I worked with when we did Tin Star. And they write everything together. They did Fortitude. They were doing, you know, they always work together. And I was like, I couldn't imagine doing it mm. all the time. And I said to them, it was um, Chris and Tom. And I'm talking about people that sh I shouldn't quote them when they're not here. But I said, how do you do it? And he was like, the secret is I think I'm better than him. <laughs> And it's like, it doesn't work unless you think you're better. And you're like, sure, 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 carry on. I'll overwrite you. <laughs> and then, like, you know, they hand it back and they're like, cool, now I'll put some magic on it. And it's only that that you think you're topping and getting it better. And I think that's writer's rooms. And I think you're just passing it around, passing it around, and making it better. And then for sole projects, I feel the difference is those voices aren't the other writers. They're your producers, the directors, mm. the execs. And I actually prefer those notes coming from the writers than I do the outside voices, because I get very, I am precious over my work. But when an exec producer tells you that your character, what was the note that I had to, I've just come off, we're in pre-production, shooting something at the minute. I had like a kind of 3 a.m. phone call in Cape Town, where they were like, wait, the, the problem is, we just don't believe she would go like into that car at that time of night, like we just don't believe she would do that. And I'm fighting for this character choice that I know in my gut is right. Mm. And I'm, it's gone through like 10 drafts and no one's questioned it before. And suddenly this like line producer's questioning it. And I'm like, it's just ridiculous. Like, I know I'm right. And I'm like, I'm not going to let this drop. So I'm having this argument, trying to lay out my case without raising my voice. <laughs> um, and at the end of it, he's like, we ain't got the money to do the scene. <laughs> just cut the fucking yeah. scene. <laughs> and I'm like, why didn't you just say yeah. that? Like, why am I? And so I just think you don't have those conversations with other writers. You have real creative conversations. And, and you have different conversations with producers, directors, and stuff. I think one of my conversations with the director recently was cut a fight scene, reduce, 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 because it was too violent. And in the end, it was like they couldn't afford the stunt director. And you're like, that's a different conversation. Mm. Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, in this kind of renaissance age that we're living in, kind of the lines are blurred with, you know, film and TV and the length of TV programs, the length of feature films, the length of short films. Um, is that a world that's opening up to the possibility of creativity within writing, or is it kind of just a scary landscape? Me? Discuss. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I think it's exciting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's, you know, the. The world is changing, how people are consuming things are changing, people are watching long form and, you know, the line is blurring between telly and film and I just think it's... Does that make you write differently though? Are you having different ideas? No, the ideas are all the same, but I guess the um, format, how you're presenting them depending on what you're working on, I mean it's yeah, probably better for I the others to... I think it's 
I mean, I do think the ideas, or the ideas that you can you can explore are different because you can have a much more complex story. You know, I've spent a long, a lot of my career adapting novels into feature films, and that's a pretty brutal process. You know, even a short novel is a hell of a lot longer than than the content of a film. Mm. So you're always going, what can I get rid of? And the first job is basically tearing you know, 100 pages out of 200 pages. Um, whereas when you, you start to look at a long form, you might go, well, there's a whole series, you know, a whole season in this, and then you can explore those characters further. So the kind of, the boundaries of storytelling um, are so much wider and, and more interesting. And also there's an appetite for telling difficult stories in that medium. It's not just, you know, it used to be, a little bit safer, and now I think there's much more risk-taking. Um, and it's kind of moment to seize, because, you know, these... It is quite a gold rush business. Mm. The, the, the industry changes, and it changes again, and then it changes again, and people... You know, the death of cinema, and the DVD, and the VHS, and da, 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 all, all of these things each time. It's like, oh, my God, the printing press is coming, and now nobody will ever listen to preachers again. And it's, it is like that. Um, and so now there's, you know, there's a new... Now it's all S-Board and streaming and everything else, and that changes the landscape, and there's this rush of, rush of money to the head. Um, and it changes everything, and you have no idea what will happen in a few years' time when that, that particular gold rush is exhausted and people stumble out of the hills, some of them with very large bags of gold, and most of us with our picks over our shoulder looking for the next one. Um, but it's an incredible opportunity at the moment, and there's an, there's an enthusiasm for different voices that I haven't mm. seen for a long mm. time. I mean, it's much more interesting from that point of view. Well, there's a lot more content being made as well. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot more room specifically for writers, I feel. Mm. It feels like lots of writers are in demand um, in a way they haven't been in the past just because so much is being made yeah. for Netflix and Amazon and all these iTunes and everything. With the success of like your first, second, third, fourth projects, is it easier to get work and is more work offered or do you, is it always a case of having to pitch or having to prove yourself for the next piece of work? No, they, they, everyone wants a track record, you know. Mm. Track record is a wonderful thing and if you've been, if you're seen to have been successful in some way, then that definitely helps. But on the other hand, <coughs> There's only, you know, the memory is quite short. Mm. So <laughs> you have to keep updating your track record and keep kind of proving yourself. And I think also in order, I don't know about, yeah, for me, if, if, if I'm not frightened that I can't do it, then I don't think I'm doing a good job. I think there's a, there's a space where people, I do feel more in demand since I got my first kind of screen credit, mm. um, but for the same type of thing. So I guess I, I went to drama school and I have a lot of friends who are actors and, you know, a girl who's played a lead in a corset will get called again to play a lead in a corset will get called again to play a lead in a corset. Um, I wrote plays, theatre, again, about a lot of stuff about race. I got asked by a theatre writer who was writing a TV thing to write an episode that felt quite theatrical and character-based about race. 
that felt like a really seamless transition. Mm -hmm. And then literally every single project mm -hmm. across the globe that was writing anything characterful about race, my phone rang. Yep. And so then it was about kind of actively, you know, rejecting that and trying to do this. We did, that's why we did the feed and trying to get into sci-fi. Then the minute I did a couple of bets on the feed, every single sci-fi project in the world is like, Rachel yep. does sci-fi. Rachel does, and it's, they just, the track record. It's like, yep. you've done it, so we can yep. trust you with it. You, you wouldn't believe how many 17th century made stories there are out there. <laughs> 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 yeah. I get the terrorist ones. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, the industry really likes to typecast you, and yeah. like when you've put so much into something, the last thing you want to do is the same film again. Do you yeah. sometimes get, I get this where I sometimes like, we really want to see Rachel for this project, and you look at it and you're like, this doesn't feel like, why would they send me this? And then suddenly you're like, and then a black person walks in, yeah. there you go. Yeah. <laughs> there it is, yeah. or something, innit? Yeah, you're definitely. like, what did mm -hmm. you think I would be good for? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, in terms of the nitty gritty of actual process of writing, um, I'm sure each of you have very different ways in, of actually sitting down and typing something out and getting, you, you know, having a board or having like, the actual space, what's it like and how do you do it and how do ideas come and do, are you in a solitary room or do you have to be outside and what's, what are research processes that you use? Wow, <laughs> big question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I suppose obviously it, it depends per project, but yeah. do you have yeah. any kind depends, of... Yeah, it depends what the starting yeah. point is. Yeah. Um, but uh, let's assume there is there is a thing, whether that's a, a book or a true story or a something, some starting point. The first thing is, for me, is, is interrogating that to work out what the actual story is. Because even if it's a thing that looks very like a story, like a novel, it still isn't the story that you'll tell in the film or the story that you'll tell in the TV series. So it's going, what is the story that I am going to tell that comes out of this project? Um, and that's quite a lot of hard work, because until you've discovered that, then all the other decisions sort of depend on that. And you, you can get very lost. I love to get lost in research. Um, I think most writers, we're all quite kind of nerdy librarians. And so, the, you know, oh, go off and do some research. That'd be nice. So much easier than writing. Anything but writing. Yeah. Like cleaning the flat. And then you feel the like it's such good hard work. And you've got <laughs> stacks of notes. And you still don't know what the story is. In fact, you probably know less what the story is. Um, so yeah, finding the story is the first big thing, I think. I think avoiding distraction yeah. is like the thing yeah. <laughs> in, you know, however you can do it. So, um, you know, yes, you know, at the very beginning, it's, um, there is that research period. And also I get very inspired by real life. So yeah. for me, it's going into the worlds and, um, just listening and watching and taking notes and that is a really enjoyable phase and I find I do it too much and what you because mainly I work on writing feature films and that's like despite this big landscape is all I'm working on um, are features and so you realize how little you actually need for a feature um, and you you know as a director and probably a writer you're very detail oriented so you gather all this info and feel like you have to have a PhD on it, or at least I do. And then when you actually come to the blank page and sit down, you suddenly realize that you probably researched too much. Mm -hmm. And so um, the sooner, what I've learned now is the sooner I can just get to the blank page and just start, 
the better and allow yourself like a bad first draft um, because no first draft is going to be good. And so just start and then it can only get better from there. <laughs> so I kind of force myself to just literally just start before I feel I'm ready when it does still feel scary and then um, go and research and like I make a note of the things I want to dig into rather than going and researching immediately. <laughs> so I have the internet switched off, I have noise cancelling headphones on and a playlist list for each project. So I literally go into a little bubble. The internet switching off thing is well yeah. done. Like, it's the ideal, but I think I had an app that meant you had to type in passcodes to get back on your Wi-Fi, and I became so quick at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it's real, and it's, um, I have a very bad habit. I think it's, we just, we, we are, I, I kind of flippantly, and I shouldn't flippantly joke about having ADHD, but like, I'm, I'm typing, I have, final draft open and I'm writing, I'm mid-scene, and before I know it, I've minimized the screen, opened Safari, opened Twitter, and I, I'm looking at moments, and I'm, like, <laughs> and I'm in, still in the character's head, and I'm just some sort of... In the black hole. Yeah, and I don't know if that's a kind of modern-day thing. I didn't feel like that at the start of writing. It feels very present, and it feels very a real obstacle for me, and a real problem that I can sit down for two hours, Someone kind of joked to me the other day, being like, are you writing or are you just sat in front of your screen? And it's like, I'm sat in front of my screen. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but I do do what I, when I write best, I do what you do, Sally. I plug in and I play, I don't ha I can't do a playlist. I do one track because mm -hmm. I need to get lost and I need to just stop mm -hmm. listening yeah. to the music. I can't have lyrics, though, yeah. so I use like just ah, like right. sounds. <laughs> Um, right. as well. Like, I think I can do scores. anything if it's on repeat because it just becomes nothing. And I can't, right. people say, can't you listen, sit in a silent room? And I'm like, no, this, a silent room is so loud. <laughs> like I can hear so much stuff in a silent room. So I don't know, I just need to be in a tunnel. I also um, have just moved in with my partner and what I'm noticing is I can't have anyone else in my space. Mm -hmm. Even to the point of um, them being outside or being, so. I'm doing this passive-aggressive thing now of like going out to the library, <laughs> leaving, um, because I feel like when I, especially when I write dialogue, I don't want anyone looking at me. I'm in a bubble that I find really vulnerable, and sometimes it can take me places I don't really want to see what my face is doing or imagine what my face is doing, and I just want to be without anyone being like, "Do you need a cup of tea?" or yeah. you know, trying to break that. So I feel, yeah, just. Mm be completely on my own, I guess. Mm. It is kind of the most vulnerable form of art in a way, writing. Yeah. Kind of, even though every story is different and it's not your own, you are essentially putting yourself on that page. Yeah. Um, how do you, on a very different level, look after yourself? Because it's so emotionally led that you are invested. A, you're on your own for a lot of the time and you're emotionally invested to the point that you are blocking out the rest of the world, so it must be kind of all mind-consuming. How do you recover from that every single time you come off a project? You apologise to all your <laughs> loved ones for <laughs> being such a twat. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I didn't listen to anything you said for the last three days. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I was, I, quite, I partied quite hard. Yeah. I used to come off and, you know, I'd go meet a friend for a drink and, like, be knocking back wines or, like, ridiculous o'clock just to feel like I was part of the world again. And I've had to learn, like, yeah, systems to be, like, mm -hmm. you, I, I, 
last year, loads of my friends got married. And I, the commitment to that, to life events, meant that it changed everything in me. Because before that, nothing was a commitment. People would be like, it's my birthday next week. I was like, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if I make your birthday. And the sad thing is, I'd, like Monday to Thursday, I'd be like, oh, how am I writing this script? I need to write this script. And by Friday, the time of their party, I was like, I'm really busy writing the script because I was not doing it Monday to Thursday. So then suddenly when there were life events that I couldn't miss, yeah. it mm. kind of changed something Focus in me. Yeah. Yeah. But I have a toddler, so he just keeps me... <laughs> Grounded. I don't have a chance to even apologize. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I do think. Yeah. Certainly, having kids rearranges your priorities, as a, you know, people always say. But you go, yeah. okay. So I used to used to write when my kids were a little bit older. I would write during the school day. So I'd take them to school, cycle like a bat out of hell back home, <laughs> write until three ten, possibly three fifteen. Cycle really, really fast arrived slightly late. Sorry, sorry, sorry. That's what I'm on, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and then when they, got, when they got to take themselves to school, I was like, this is great. I'm going to have these extra hour yeah. either end of the day. <laughs> and I just wasted it. That's Don't like, say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to those days. Relaxing is not a waste. <laughs> I'm happy to take questions from the audience. If you put your hand up and then if you wait for the mic to come um, to you. In the UK... Only 15% of scriptwriters are female, and there's been no movement on that in about a decade. Um, can you... What are your thoughts on that? Uh, it's, it's shameful. Um, yeah, so the Writers Guild uh, commissioned this research, um, and we looked at the screenwriters in film and television from 2000 to 2016. Um, and one of the things that we'd been told over and over again as we were going... Uh, there's something wrong here, where are all the women writers, uh, where are all the writers who just don't all look exactly the same, and we know what they look like. Um, and don't worry, it's getting better. Don't worry, it's getting better. We just commissioned a woman. Don't worry, it's getting better. And we looked at those figures, and the most shocking thing to me was that flat line. It just had not got better at all. Uh, in fact, in some areas, it had got worse. Comedy was, was actually on a downhill slope instead. Um, and so uh, one of the great things about, about counting, about doing that boring statistical stuff, is that then you can go, no, things haven't got better. They haven't magically started to fix themselves. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been a kind of strange transition. We actually all have to really concentrate and think why this is happening and what the, what the effect of our own prejudices and biases are and how we have to deal differently. And one of the problems with both film and television is that they operate in a very informal way. Um, so most proper grown-up jobs now have quite careful standards about how you interview people and how you select people, and uh, film and television doesn't do that at all. It's basically, who do you know, and you know, where have you been, and all of that stuff. Um, and its recommendations, and so it's incredibly easy for people just to keep going to the same places uh, and validating their choices by going, well, I went to the same place and that person was successful, so that was the right thing to do. And then I went once to somewhere where I hadn't been before, and it, it wasn't successful, so that was a disaster, but it, it's a really poor excuse. Um, one of the great things that's happened because of that counting is that um, a number of very senior people 
have really thought hard about what they're doing and examined their processes. Um, the ITV comedy is a very shining example of this, where they've committed to 50-50. Uh, and it's, you know, it's happening in other places, so it's getting better. <laughs> I don't know that it is getting better, but there is a sense that it has, there has been a little bit of a shift because of Me Too, because of this, yeah. that report, because of a sense of this is, we've had enough of this and it has to change. I feel like that shift has happened not just in film and TV, it's just yep. happened generally to society. There's like this general cons like consciousness, you know, that's just permeated all different sectors that is partly me too and is partly it just feels like um you know the sexism that is pretty much everywhere not i mean look at the military look at other industries mm -hmm. you know you have it as well um it's just that in what we do um the audiences are so mixed and diverse and when you realize the people who are the storytellers and then look at who consumes the media and the fact that it's publicly funded it's um, you know, it's national lottery money that mm. goes into funding, you know, nepotistic projects with the same groups of people or, um, you know, people aren't, it's basically sexism, racism and classism. Yeah. Mm. Sure. And the <laughs> the thing, three isms. <laughs> the thing that I think I'm most mindful of is um, this want for change, this want to be seen to be changing, this um, dialogue that people are even having about it. But then I think that creates like a hype mentality. So I get... I think I'm the only person sat on this panel that hasn't had one of my films greenlit for production. And um, I hear lots of people talking about how they are developing me to work on a film. And I'm like, you haven't replied to any of my emails. Mm. You haven't, like, you didn't, like, give you, even give me feedback on that thing. I was in Toronto on a project kind of, you know, with the head of one of those buildings that Sally mentioned earlier, where someone was like, oh, my God, Rachel, we are so working with her. I was like, you're not. Literally lying, but they want to be seen. So yeah. I'm very aware at this stage in my career, like just actions, not words. Like let's just yeah. keep being mindful of being like it's brilliant that someone is wanting to develop me because development does pay the rent, like it does, and it is you know nothing to be sniffed at. But unless you're crossing the line, unless you're getting productions, unless you're learning. You know, I've worked in television, I've worked in theatre to see those kind of final productions. You don't learn anything. You just stood treading water being like, well, maybe, maybe my script isn't good enough. Like I'll, but you'll never flipping know until someone makes it and you see the actor can't do that scene and you'll see the DOP is having problems kind of trying to get your vision. You can't learn until you get over that hurdle. Yeah. Um, so whilst I'm kind of stuck in this, yeah, 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 we want to we wanna work with Rachel, mm. it's just, uh, yeah, be mindful, I think. Hi. Um, I think ever since I was little, I've, uh, I've just wanted to be a writer. When I was younger, I used to properly, like, I used to gorge myself on books and just spit out, spit out words, but what happens when that stops? What happens if you feel like you've lost your passion and how do you get it back? A walk in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, just taking a break um, for me. Um, and um, knowing it's temporary, you know, and just reconnecting to what gets you excited and taking the pressure off yourself. Um, you know, I've been there where I've, like, been writing something and thought this is the best thing I've ever done and then sent it to kind of a few close people who are, like, the first inner circle who ever read anything I've written and they've come back going, uh-uh. 
And I've just kind of had that despair <laughs> that I've just spent weeks. Um, and I don't know what I was thinking. It's just not there on the page and suddenly feeling blocked. Um, and I think it's, it's a very personal thing, like finding what it is that can just make you step back. Uh, for me, it's just taking a break and taking the pressure off and just reconnecting to what excites me, watching films, um, um, films, old films that I love, and going, oh, yeah, these are the films that got me excited and made me want to make films and write films. And, yeah, I walk in the woods. Yeah, but I think, I think there's a... The luxury that all of us have is that that's what we do all day. Yeah. And one of the things that I used to find really hard was to go to work all day doing something else and then come home in the evening and find the energy to do the writing. Um, and I would, you know, at three o'clock in the afternoon when I was doing, supposed to be doing my job, I'd be thinking about the writing, but by seven o'clock in the evening, I'd be so knackered. <laughs> it was very hard to do it. So it's also acknowledging that and going, okay, so I actually I need to be respectful enough of myself and the thing that I want to do to go, well, maybe I need to take, you know, the next bit of holiday I have, and, and it's going to be a writing holiday. Um, when I only think about that, and I treat myself as a writer, because I don't know about you, but until I got paid, I never would have dared to say I was a writer. Yeah. Um, and it's, therefore, you kind of, it gets pushed down the list of priorities. And if you really feel passionate about it, you have to push it back up the list of priorities yeah. and say, this is really important to me, and it makes me feel like I'm expressing myself in a way that other things don't. Yeah. So I should give it that priority. Yeah, make space for it. You're so right. Yeah. Hi. I uh, just wanted to say thank you. Um, it's really wonderful to hear women uh, who are in a similar position as I am um, as, a, as a writer. Um, because, I don't know, while I was at university and uh, very serendipitously I wrote a project in summer and it got picked up and then I ended up sort of deferring university and coming out into the real world and, and writing this thing. But I often have to take myself literally away from society to Wales in order to get away from friends who don't understand that it, it you can't talk to them every day and you can't be in that space. Um, and I'm finding it very hard to find people that get it. Um, and I was wondering how, how you found your people, the people that wrote, that you can write with and you know kind of how you work and why that process of just isolation is completely necessary. How did you find your people? Yeah. <laughs> I guess they don't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> the people who are still there. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. But are there any like, places, like writers' groups or, or things that you found that helped you to, I don't know? If, like, I, I go to the theatre, and London has a very small theatre scene, and there is a lot of new writing on, and there's lots of scratch notes on, and you just get to meet other writers, and it's everyone's really brilliant and looking for hand-holding and looking, you know, to talk about transitioning and looking to, you know, go to their short film screenings, and you just become like a small family. And, you know, when Sally was saying, when you went back to, you left your job and went back to kind of making your short films and hustling, we're all, once you're at that stage, you're all in the same boat, and you're all... Yeah asking the really important questions, like how do you meet Ren and meet that deadline? And, you know, do you know any kind of casual work jobs? And you're all, I guess, 
and then you just find your people and get rid of the ones that you don't get I mean, on with. Yeah, jo join the Writers Guild if you're not already a member, because it is, you know, there are your people, um, and not only are they they all worrying about the deadlines and everything else, but they're also worrying about how you get paid and you don't get exploited and you don't have to do all that writing for free for people and uh, you you know it's it's really important stuff too. Um, but it's also a place where you can find people who care about the same things, which is really important. And for me, it's not always other writers necessarily. So like the people who like are in my inner circle are an editor and an actor, and it's just people I've connected with as creative beings. And, you know, they give me better feedback yeah. than, than writers, actually, that I've had read my stuff. So um, I think it's just once you make a creative connection, no matter who they are, even if they're not, even if they're a painter, you know, if you feel you, they can read your stuff, you can talk about writing and you click. If you go onto the BAFTA website, there's a yeah. tab that says supporting talent and there's a scheme called BAFTA Crew, which is for writers, producers, directors in all kind of craft areas, which is a network of 400 people which have events and live streams and a group. So go onto that and join that. Hi, um, you've just answered one of my questions um, about in terms of if you respect someone's opinion and they're not in the business, um, would you still go there rather than going to somebody in the business because they know how it works? And if you're... Because I'm from a visual background yeah. and that thing of would you take the risk as hard as it is and as you have... as it doesn't bother me how male-dominated it is. Well, it didn't used to until I became fully aware of it. And that thing of being having to be really good, because I'm from a visual background, but I've always, maybe everyone says this, but I've always felt I had a story, and I've been sort of putting stuff down. But would you say, take the risk? Yeah. As much as hard as you've had to hustle, and the other ladies have sort of hustled in a parallel way, and sometimes you do get incredibly tired to keep your integrity through the BS and all the other elements and whilst you're having to, supposed to be maintain your skill set, um, would you still say just go for it? Definitely take the risk. I mean, I um, yeah. once saw um, a copy of like an Andrea Arnold script. She doesn't actually write like a conventional script. Um, it's just like impressions and stuff on a page. So it's like there are so many different ways and routes into making a film. I mean, it's all storytelling. And I think some of the most interesting films are people who have had interesting lives and a unique way in. And there's no one time or, you know, you have filmmakers of all ages. There are people who start, have made their first film in their 50s and 60s and 70s. And I say that just that it's not just you have to have done it when you were 25 and had a hit. It's never too late to make your first film and just find your own way. But I and think you should, I think you do have to take a real look about what you want your life to look like, though. Because, like, you have to be like, you know, do you want, do you like eating in nice restaurants? Do you want to live in, yeah. like, a, you know, five-bedroom flat share in zone six? Like, there was a long time I was sharing a one-bed flat with my best friend. Yeah. And my friend turned to me and she said very kindly, she was like, I don't think you made it as a writer, Rachel, because you're the best writer. I think you made it as a writer because you were willing to live a lifestyle. And yeah. it's like some people, some of you know, very talented people wouldn't be willing to. And do they can't that. hack mm. it, you yeah. know, because so like I 
yeah, I, yeah. When you start out, there's like maybe a bigger group of you, yeah. and then you see how yep. many people fall away and go. Actually, I just want to get a job and you know get married and have when kids you go and to have Christ, like a Christmas house. parties, and people go, "Oh, I could have done that," and you're always like, "Sure," and you're like, "Actually, you probably could have, but you probably got caught up in a job that paid very nicely, and it was very hard to shake off." have friends doing that kind of thing and lately I'm thinking am I the fool that I've been like toughing it out following the dream through the the, the highs and the troughs like you do get to that point of I don't want to be a woulda coulda shoulda am I still going to carry on jumping it is he who lasts the longest <laughs> yeah. yeah you know it really is resilience really yeah yeah, yeah. Thank so you, Liz. just keep going but Thank also also much. I think that um and it's it's inescapable but but I was listening to um Michael Pierce last night, who made Beast, mm. and he was talking about it took him eight years from leaving the National Film School, where he was a bit of a superhero, and they was like, Michael Pierce, he's going to be a star, and eight years later, he finally got his film made, and everyone, you know, and, and you tell that story when you've made your film and you've been a hit at Toronto and da -de -da, people go, oh yeah, eight years. Yeah. But eight years of not yeah. getting your film well, made Blue and slogging away is, yeah. you know, it's really hard. Yeah. And what you hear, you hear yeah. the success and you don't hear the long, hard slog of persistent mm. rejection and, and uh, disappointment. And not many people are prepared to keep banging their yeah. heads against the wall. You've got to make the no's, like, empower you. So I'm now in a space where, like, I like no's because they give me, like, a fire in my belly and I think, I'm going to show you, you know? And so it drives me. So, like, I really like no's now because they just, like, I don't know, I've, I've always liked underdog stories. And, like, to me, I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to fight. I'm going to make this film. I'm going to show everyone they're wrong. So it's kind of... Take that no and that shut door and just let it propel you to, like, OK, I'm going to find a way. I was lucky enough to get my first film script options last year, and now a director has been attached. Um, and now I'm getting loads and loads of ideas, wonderful, brilliant ideas from the director. Um, but, this is, and, uh, but this is my first rodeo, and this was an original idea, so I've not worked with other writers on it. It was all in my head, and now I'm sort of out in the world, and it's now a collaborative. I understand, obviously, film is completely collaborative. I'm now at the start of this big collaborative process. So I wondered what tips you had for someone like me in this position, um, especially, say, working with a director. So when you're working with a director who has lots of ideas and, and notes and things and the idea of sort of doing rewrites and taking that on board and working really collaboratively with someone, especially when you've just been working in this rather isolated, writerly yeah. way. Thanks. Uh, my thing, I've worked with so many directors because I've done these t TV jobs. Um, my thing is uh, be very, uh, my, my new thing that I've learned is be like, can I think on that? Just be really take that space because so many times someone comes at you with such a bold note or something, it feels so aggressive and it feels so like, and I feel my whole body go tight being like, they're fucking stupid and they don't get it. <laughs> and, like, and I'm like, that's probably, because like I said before, when I learned working with my friends, everyone wants the film to be better. And those notes are coming from a place of wanting the film to be better. Doesn't mean they're right, but it doesn't mean they're wrong. So I think just taking space to absorb it, sit on it and then go away and not, because I think sometimes people just throw things at you and expect you to answer it in the moment. And then you're like, yeah, sure, maybe she should be a boy. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and then you're doing like a full page one rewrite and halfway through crying and being like, this is the worst idea ever. So, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And also mm -hmm. sometimes you get in a thing of being like, 
it's like there's not a lot of time, it's been made, and you know, you're on this kind of thing of being like, just start the notes, start, get on with it, and get on with the rewrites. Um, so now I just think the best thing I learned recently is just be like, let me think and just step away because it is your story and it has been in your head. Um, but also, fresh eyes are like, you know, kind of gold dust. And if to get someone who, you know, comes in with it, I'm uh, um, babbling. The one thing I did note from doing, we were doing rewrites of the feed just before Christmas. And the notes were coming in hard and they were on set filming. And I was kind of just sat at the laptop and it was 24 hour rewrites. So it was like doing 60 pages, almost like from start to finish, just to get it where it was like, we've um, the house doesn't have an attic. So that chase scene that goes through the attic, she now has to come back in and renegotiate her way past this like man with a wielding ax to get out and run into safety. I'm like, that's a different beast. <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's look at that. And then you're turning that out and you're going again and again and again. And then you'll, you have these notes, and they're so positive, and they're like, brilliant, let's go again. And, you're like, <laughs> and it's like somehow you get more and more notes. And then I remember just once being like, I didn't do note 37 and 43. I hope that's OK. And the exec came back with, of course that's OK. These are all suggestions. Mm. And you're like, oh, OK. That was interesting. But like, yeah. and I think they were really yeah. grateful that I tried to take everything on board. But suddenly they were like, we're thinking as quickly as you're thinking. We're like getting your scripts in, quickly reading them to get them back to the director and cast to get this thing made. We're just all, like all kind of hands on deck, whatever the phrase is, trying to get this thing to the finish line. So you can just be like, yes, 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 no. And I think there's power in that, but yeah. yeah. But negotiating the yeses to the noes as a good balance is probably fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I used to think that it was my my job to kind of do all the notes. And sometimes you're getting notes from different people. And that can be extremely confusing. <laughs> and I go, OK, so how do I simultaneously make the first 10 pages longer and shorter? <laughs> um, <laughs> and how do I make this character angrier and also more empathetic? No. And, um, and then. Uh, I was working with another writer who very calmly went, um, this is great, guys, but you're contradicting each other. So if you'd like to go away and decide what the note is, then we'll take action on it. Went, oh, <laughs> yeah, of course, that's what I should have been doing. Um, so I, I think, the, for me, the important thing is knowing what's the story for me, and then is this note serving the story? And there are notes, good notes are always serving the story. And then when, when the, or serving the, the de desperate logistics of, you know, yeah. there is no attic, you know, that's, that's <laughs> a very important note too. Um, but when you haven't reached the attic building or not building stage, then it's all about, is this serving the story? And if not, then you go, let me think about that. And then I think the reason that you've given me that note is not because you should be a girl, but because back here I haven't established this. So I have addressed your note, but in a different way. Yeah. Um, I don't know how you were having the notes chats with the director, but something that I find helpful is having written notes. Because sometimes when you talk, you just go around in circles and you can come away from that going, what was that? Did I understand? Didn't I? Whereas when you commit to kind of writing, and as well, this is what I do in the edit when I get a lot of notes as a director, is I keep a record of them all in one document. So when you start to get the contradictions by the fourth lot of notes, you can be like, on January the 12th, you said this. <laughs> <laughs> and, love you. <laughs> and it works. Yeah. It's something really easy. You just keep adding, the, leaving the, the previous notes at the bottom of the document and the new ones on the top. And they're all there for everybody to see. Mm. 
Do you sometimes, so, I found as well, I'm like, they never have read it as well as you've read it. Is that yeah. just me? Like, so many times people are like, I just don't get why she's angry. And you're like, did you just miss the whole thing on page seven? And often they're like, yeah, so yeah. We yeah. did. <laughs> yeah. And that's, so they haven't been with it as long as you have and things like that. So it is okay, I think, to yeah. question. How important was it to get and how did you get an agent? Yeah, so I felt like it was the most important thing um, when I didn't have one um, because it felt like I needed, I had a script, I needed an agent to help me get my film made and yet um, I wasn't really meeting anyone and it, um, the couple of agents I did meet, I kind of knew they weren't great and so I was like, oh gosh, do I settle with those because they're the only agents who've even mentioned signing me just so I have an agent. And then I ended up, by complete luck, meeting a lawyer. <laughs> and it, it was amazing because I shared the fact that I was like, do I really need an agent, don't I? And he said, well, if you have any contracts you need looking at, I'll do it for you for a fee. Okay. And I suddenly realized, oh, okay. And so I actually ended up getting a gig where I um, was writing a screenplay for another director. Um, this is one of the jobs when I was trying to get my own film made. Um, and I just got him to do my contract for me on, as a one-off, and I paid him for that job. And I was really lucky because what it meant was I didn't actually have an agent for ages, and it wasn't until a few day, like a week before I started filming my feature that my producer said, you really need an agent because we have to sign your director's contract now, and you don't have one. Let us, we'll introduce you around. And so then I was able to suddenly go into all these agencies that I never would have had access to, mm. meet like a bunch of people and end up with a really good one who I'm still with today. Mm. So don't rush into it if it doesn't feel right. Find a way to make it work. I think there is this thing that an agent is gonna do all this stuff for you, but they don't really is what I see, but I don't know. Yep. I wrote to, I looked at everyone who I, thought I was at the same stage in my career at and looked at who they were rep by and wrote really short one-line emails that were so obnoxious. They were like, hi, I'm looking for rep. Let me know if you're interested. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm not wasting my time on anything more than that. Because I'd come from drama school and I'd done those imploring emails as training as an actor to be like, please love me. And it's like, they don't care. They see you as a business. And I just was like, there's no point. Uh, unless like they are interested. There's just no point even engaging. So I was like, this is, these are my credits. Let me know if you want to have a conversation. And the, and the minute, most of them bit, because they are like, who's this cocky girl? And the minute I started in, um, engaging in conversation, I d massively let it slip that I was like meeting Giles from United next week or meeting, you know, Charles from mm -hmm. Tavistock the other week. And they suddenly people were like, okay, so it was lovely to meet you. And I was like, cool, I need to get to um, Independent. Do you know where that is? And they were like, oh, who are you meeting there? I was like, oh, someone called. And like, <laughs> I played it like a hustle because I thought like you, I needed it. And I got all the jobs, I got all the um, offers. Whether they would have been as impressed with me, I don't know, like, but also, as a writer, you can sit on someone's books dormant. Um, and I think there are some agents that allow that to happen and wait for you to blow up on your own and then take all the glory for it. I don't really see the bad thing in that, other than there might there's, you've potentially lost out on someone over the way that might push you a bit more. But I think, am I sly for saying this? I think there are certain agents that do give you a kudos 
and people will sit up you, a bit taller. You, you, yes, but when you're starting out, it's hard to access those yeah. things. So yeah. the, 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 the dilemma is not, you kind not, of need that first piece of work. Not think that not having an agent is the reason yes. that you don't have access yes, is exactly. the thing. Don't think that's yeah. it, because it really isn't. I tell you what, though, from coming from an actor's point of view, where they can't get you in the... You, they don't know what your, what your talent's like unless they can see you. We, as writers, have a kind of head start in being like, I can present you my work yeah. up front. Actors don't do... They can't go in and do a monologue, like, in front of an agent. Whereas you can be like, so if you have a product, you can send that out. And I think that's exciting and quite empowering um, and something you can do in your own time. Oh, yeah, God. okay. <laughs> Definitely a UK yeah. agent if you are making films here. If you're going to move out there and make an American film as your first film, then maybe someone there. But I, it's a completely different no. business and a completely different set of ideas. Yeah. So US agents are much more proactive and they, yeah. they push clients into things. Um, and UK agents are, are like your kind of kind I have uncle been. or aunt who goes... Is that wise for you, Jeff? What's the joke? I have a US <laughs> manager, though. There was a joke, so. though, when the Writers Guild in America were, like, on strike, and some American agent was like, this is what it must be like to be a British agent. <laughs> <laughs> I just have a few meetings, yeah. got what to play. <laughs> I think, I always think the difference between the British and the American is the Americans will get you in every single room you can flip and think of, but you're in that room with thousands of other people. The British model are being really cliquey about who they're going to let in that room. And like the people on the other side are being cliquey about who they want to see. But if you get in the room, you want to tag. I don't know what the better yeah. option is. I think as a brown person, maybe on the other side, which is why lots of our kind of talent are going that way. Mm. But if you do get in a room over here, you're kind of one of ten, so the yeah. odds are better. I just would like to drill a little bit more into feedback, the kind of quality of the feedback and maybe also the quantity that you're looking for. Is it people you share <laughs> film tastes with or are they just people who you trust on a personal level? Can you take us a little bit more in that, um, in that area, that first feedback? Yeah, I think um, if you find someone who's good at it, then hold on to them for dear life because it's it's quite rare. It's very, I mean, scripts aren't very friendly to read. You know, they're not sort of natural medium, I suppose, as as a read. So you have to have someone who's who understands how to read a script, which is a particular skill, uh, and also understands how to make you feel better about the huge changes you need to make to your work, and not worse, which is another huge skill. Um, I have a producer who I completely love because when I go and see her and she wants me to totally rewrite the script, I come out feeling thrilled and energized at the possibilities <laughs> in the work. <laughs> and, and I know that somebody else could give me the same notes that she's just given me and I would want to go and you know, lie down and take lots of Valium. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, it is an astonishing thing to get good notes from somebody which feel like they're, they're um, they're positive, they've totally engaged with you, they've read it properly, they understand what you're trying to say, and they're trying to help you to say it better. Um, so, but how... How do you find those people? I think I you know. have to you try. Just, you just have to keep trying. 
And you keep trying, and you certainly recognize bad notes yeah. <laughs> very quickly. You quickly see who has engaged and who, you know, you can talk to, and is actually, you've left that conversation with, like, next steps in your mind, and, yeah. Who's taken the time? I don't take feedback anymore. It's a personal thing from companies that say no to my work, because you don't want to make it, so what's the point? Everything you have to say after that means you're not engaged in it in a positive way. Um, I think and I also know from having a lot of friends who are writers and you know jobbing writers and having to get part-time jobs, a lot of those jobs are, we've said no to the script, you give them feedback. And so the person giving feedback is kind of skim reading a script and typing up notes for you. That's a personal thing that I do. So therefore, I think your peers and your friends and your, your inner circle are really necessary. One of the things that I find really helpful is hearing it read out loud. Mm. Um, so often I'll have it read to me, even just by one person. Uh, it doesn't have to be like a proper read through with loads of actors or anything that's organized, but just hearing it out loud is a different beast. And I'm doing, this is really sad and really like desperate, but right now I'm using the what's it called on oh, final draft yeah, yeah. oh the voices it's so, the voice like, I never, it just got so insane with work and balancing different projects kind of at christmas just recently that it was that i'm skim reading scripts and i'm just i'm not even absorbing anything and i couldn't see typos i couldn't see just hearing someone else trip on your words or land that clunky sentence in a really automated neutral voice yeah. was like a godsend it kind of because you think you can read it and you're like yeah 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 i get it i got it and then your feedback's coming up being like you have, you have to change the scene's not working go again um so that helped if bare minimum yeah, well, reading reading it aloud yourself. I don't know. Yeah. I when I've worked with Peter Weber a couple of times, who directed *Girl with a Pearl Earring*, and he does this writer torture, which is to make you read the script aloud to him. And there's nothing like finding your bad dialogue. <laughs> Have you <laughs> said it yourself? <laughs> oh. Thank you very much for an interesting reflection. My question to you is: obviously, you talked about the dangers of being typecast as a writer. I mean, do each of you have a pet project that you would like to, if you if if these stars aligned and the right people came along, do you have a particular pet project that you'd like to see made of yours that is against the grain of what you've been known for writing? <laughs> I, yes. Do you have money? Like, uh, what is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> question. Are we <laughs> I'm very excited because I'm writing in the 21st century at the moment, and that's a big break for me. <laughs> Yeah, my passion project is no secret. It's yeah, a film I'm making that's about a cult. So I can't wait. It's very dysfunctional, based on a true story. Um, yeah, I, what was the yeah? I'm trying to get stuff made, <laughs> and and <laughs> is it against the grain? Probably not. No, but um, character small. What people consider small stuff. I'm trying to get something small made, and everyone says it's small. Mm -hmm. and, and I see it very visible and hyper-visible in American television and, and very commercially visible. And over here, it doesn't seem to exist, but there seems to be very little interest in it. We will see. Yeah. I wanted to ask, as a writer for hire, how many projects can you comfortably or successfully manage at one time? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I did... Uh, 
six episodes of television last year. Two of them were my own pilots, and then four of them were for other people. I think it nearly killed me. Mm. Um, because things are on set, and so you, you're comfortably doing four to five drafts before you get to shoot and script, which feels like a very fun process. And then they go on set, and then just everything that could go wrong goes wrong, it seems. Also, as well, the thing that I learned last year goes no further in this room. My agent kept being like, this never happens. It's like, you are so unlucky that like they ran out of money or the actor got sick or the director had to prolong or the location. Like it never happens. After five, six production shoot scripts, fucking happens all the time. <laughs> Just going to say. Like, if I hear like it doesn't happen one more time. Filmmaking is everything going wrong. Yeah. 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 And, and you're all just picking up the thing. And um, I kind of just went a bit crazy last year because you do spend so long on the script and I'm, I'm very precious and I kind of have been all telling my own stories for so long. And then you just hear like, oh, the actor doesn't think he would speak like that. You're like, oh, sure. Sure, and you tell the actor to write five drafts and then come talk to me. And then you're, but that's a non-negotiable. It's like, go again, go again, go again. And you're like, oh, and then at the same time, you're dealing with all the other projects. It's so comfortably, um, like as few as possible on other people's stuff, I think. Because also as well, the final thing that I would say for writing for other people, I don't know, you did it with Babylon, didn't you? I did it was Yeah, no, but that was direct. Okay. It, it's um, when you're fighting these fights, actually, it's not your story. So what are you fighting for, really? You're kind of wasting a lot of energy to like push someone else's story forward. And you can, I want that story to be the best story it can be because I love storytelling. But you know, sometimes you're like, I think she should be in a red hoodie. And they're like, oh, we think it should be blue. And you know, I'm the lead writer, so. And that's <laughs> the end of, like, kind of, and you just have to be like, that's the end of that discussion. As many ideas that you have as why you're right, it just isn't worth the energy. Um, what advice would you give an A-level student who wants to go into screenwriting and who's already done a few screenplays already? Can you say that again? Um, what advice would you give an A-level student who wants to go into screenwriting and has already done a few screenplays already? Slow oh, down. Fuck. <laughs> um, I don't know, I'm so slow. It took me years to work out what I wanted to say. And I'm terrified by people who already know it when they're that young. Um, I think you need to get it seen. And I think competitions yeah. were the way I kind of got propelled forward. If you just get the best thing in the world is when you're starting that. No one knows you. You just throw them into every competition you can. Because the minute one bites, you're Suddenly, people are reading your script with a real kind of serious. I was going to say yeah. a lot of there are a lot of schemes for like certain age groups mm. that you're in and just older than that. So like check out BAFTA website, British Film Institute website, Film London website. You know, um, BBC Writers Room. Yeah, all these different places. They'll have not only competitions, but they'll have like. Um, events. They'll have like um, a week long whatever, and yeah. you can just start making contacts with others who are you know at the same level as you you'll find other people who maybe want to direct if you only want to screenwrite team up with a few people make a few short films with them yeah. and get your stuff made but are you asking also asking about university or are you asking about the writing separate from your education separate from my education mm. because right. it's quite hard to um i guess find those opportunities when you're like 16 mm. yeah so i guess it's just 
trying to get in there. Uh-huh. Well, there are schemes, like I said, that are for that age group. So, you know, filmmaking is so practical. So it's like you write something and now you need a director and actors, you know, to make it, to, to make it, in, you know, something that you can then have a reel with. Um, so start looking for people who are just like you and they are out there. So if you go on to Bataguru, it, <laughs> yeah. um, it houses all of our audiovisual content and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews with directors, screenwriters and lots of kind of handy tips and info on that. Um, for the next stage up for people, we have obviously our supporting talent page on BAFTA org. Um, BAFTA Elevate is a scheme that Sally was part of in 2017 yeah. 18 and Rachel's part of this year supporting um, filmmakers from underrepresented backgrounds getting to the next stage of their career. So hope it's helped in some way. Um, and in terms of competitions, Grazia is running one right now. The deadline's the 29th of March. Rachel wrote the first two pages of a screenplay, and so you just have to write 10 more pages. Um, maybe you might win that. I guess uh, kind of an apt one to finish on today for International Women's Day. Um, I, like, I'm sure a lot of people here are at a very, very early stage in my career. And I guess um, it's a question about confidence, really, particularly as women. Um, the thought of things like writer's room, which Rachel has talked a bit about, sounds terrifying. They sound kind of like, to me, who knows very little about it, somewhere where everyone's ideas are so much better than yours. And I guess... I'm just, I'm asking really about resilience, about confidence, about how as women you um, protect yourself and drive forward your vision and don't let doubt, you know, and other people's voices and other people's brilliant ideas get in the way of you driving forward your ideas. So sorry, that's kind of like a, quite a big thing. It was supposed to be a question about writer's rooms and are they really terrifying? but it's kind of wider than that, really. How do you sort of drown out that doubt when everyone else seems so confident? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, the greatest predictor of success is confidence. And I think that, um, for me, when I entered the industry, I thought, oh, my God, I have so much to learn because I didn't go to film school. So that was, like, my big hang-up. And it took me 10 years of working in different jobs and realising that my boss and their boss actually didn't know what they were talking about. (laughs) Um, And I was actually there doing a lot of work and, like, even at the BBC, you know, writing stuff that I wasn't credited for, the whole scenes that would be up on the screen without my name on. And, you know, you kind of are in that situation enough times and then you look at the people who are in those positions and you say, why are they the ones who are getting all the breaks? And often it's uh, men who um, are a lot more confident than women and they, you know, will talk a good talk. And when you actually look at what they've done, it's nothing compared to what you've done. And it was like, that's where I reached after 10 years of realising that I knew more than everybody around me, and I actually thought, well, maybe I can actually do this. And it was that tipping point where, like, the pain of not doing it was greater than the pain of just doing it. Mm. And the more you then use that muscle, the more you just have to take your space. So it is a confidence game. And, you know, in terms of the faster you get that armour on and push yourself into those situations and learn to enjoy feeling scared and things like those, put yourselves in those situations, um, then you get better at it and you start to like it. Yeah, I completely agree. I think you have to, you have to pretend a confidence you don't yet have 
yeah. go, this is how I would like to be, so I'm going to imagine that is how I am, and, and pretend it long enough, and then it turns out kind of to be real. And the other thing is, is not to take the criticism personally, not to take rejection personally. And I think I've quite often noticed um, female writers who I've been mentoring and things find that difficult, it difficult, more difficult than than the young men to yeah. separate them from the writing or them their 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 personal esteem from the criticism of the work. Because someone is criticizing your work, perhaps harshly and stupidly, um, that doesn't mean that you should take it that you are stupid and inadequate. Um, it's, you know, it's their inadequacy as a, a note giver, as previously remarked on. Um, and you can make the writing better, and that's fine. And that's what the notes are for, is for you to make the writing better, not for you to feel worse about yourself. Yeah. I, for a long time, I was always the youngest person in every room I walked into, and I just always, I feel I'm, my character can be quite blaggy, and I can kind of wing things. It was the one area I just wouldn't, I just did the work, and I walked in kind of having read, you know, you go in, there's a pilot, and you're ready to flesh out the rest of the TV series. I read that pilot like three, four times. I knew every inch of it, I knew what I was doing with it. And then the guys there have been like, yeah, what happens at the end again? You're like, okay, I know what I'm doing, and then that's... I guess that's how I learned my confidence, because maybe sometimes you can't always fake it, so you have to actually literally walk in that room sitting on knowledge. Uh, that helps. Yeah. As a woman, or like um, I'm coming from like a minority background, or whatever you want to call it in this industry, basically, <laughs> um, I think you just have to accept that you do have to work harder than other people. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just, uh, that's something that I've always seen with other people, with women, with people like me. It's like, you just have to do more, do your homework, be, you know, people are yeah. surprised, but like, you really have to work yeah. harder. And the one thing that I would say that I learned again from all my crap last year, is I used to be really precious, and then the notes come regardless. So just learning to let go quicker and being like, you know, when you're hitting deadlines and something has to be in it on a Friday night and you're like, but the last scene isn't perfect. It's like, there's going to be so much yeah. wrong with that last scene anyway. Just get it in. And I think that's what I learned that guys, are, to be generalizing, yeah. guys around me were better at. Like one of my best friends is a male screenwriter and he's like, yeah, turned it around. <laughs> he's, like, he's so like, you know what? They said do a page one rewrite, didn't have time. <laughs> sorted out the first half. Hopefully that will keep them going and then I'll sort out the next half next week. And real like uh, a lightness to his, to his work <laughs> that I think keeps him sane and I think I wasn't good at. And I was like, someone's having a better time in this industry than I am. <laughs> <laughs> and someone meets like, is in the pub on a Friday night when I'm not. <laughs> Um, so I learned to take on a bit of that as well. You reach a point where you gain some respect. So you are a woman. I, I get what you mean about having to work hard, you know, because it largely is a man's world out there. Yeah. But do you reach a point that you've, you gain some respect now? And being a woman is secondary, or is that uh, too flippant a thing for a man to say? I'd like to say yes, because uh, you, you do in some ways, like you... You know, my film did really well, and so suddenly it was like I was in rooms I wasn't before. And yes, there is a certain amount of respect given to you, but like, so I'm directing a film now that I had like five interviews for. And I think that if maybe I had been a guy, I might have had two. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I mean, I, 
I kind of feel like this comes with, you know, the issues that um, society has with women directors, women in charge, women bosses. Yeah, and there still are just a handful of successful yeah. female directors in the world, aren't there? Yeah, so it's yes. like, you know, I'm aware that, like, you know, that interview process took, you know, six weeks and five or six interviews, and, wow. you know, I, I worked really hard, made, like, a book <laughs> with my vision and submitted it, and... Yeah, it's very exciting. <laughs> um, thank you all for sharing your Friday night with us and International Women's Day. Um, please look on the Grazia website and enter the competition um, if you're a female screenwriter um, or identify yourself as female. Um, and please, um, yeah, look on Bafta Guru for lots of handy tips on screenwriting amongst other. Avenues. Thank you, Olivia, Sally, and Rachel. Thank you.